Hello and welcome to a special end of year podcast for The Lancet. I'm Richard Lane and I'm joined by our editor Dr Richard Horton and senior editor Dr Rona MacDonald to have a quick whiz through the highlights for The Lancet in 2007. Richard, let's come to you first. It feels like it's been a pretty busy year. What's your take on how 2007 has been for The Lancet? Well, you're right. It has been a busy year. I guess we divide our work up at the Lancet into research, journalism and campaigns and reviews and I think for me some of the campaigns that we've worked with some incredible scientists around the world really stand out for me Um, in particular uh, campaigns around mental health, energy and health and the Women Deliver conference on maternal survival which was a remarkable event held here in London. Yes, and I've got some audio clips from some of our series launches to play in this end-of-year podcast. One thing that strikes me, Richard, having been here a few years myself, is that as well as being you know, a serious scientific publisher, we're also very much an advocacy organisation now with campaign themes and getting very much on the front foot and collaborating with other key agencies in the area of, of global health. It's really strange. When we started doing these series back in 2003 with Jennifer Bryce and her team on child survival, we didn't really know that we were going to go in this direction at all. But what Jennifer showed us was that if you bring amazing scientists together to work on a neglected problem, then if you get the best science, you get the best research in one place, what you've actually done is you built a foundation for advocacy. And that advocacy then becomes a reliable way of changing the way policymakers, people in agencies, ministers in countries and elsewhere, how they think about a particular problem. So what we've done this year, we began the year with a continuation of our work on child survival with a series on child development and then going a little bit further with a series on adolescent health. But then branching out a little bit from the children's sphere into these areas like mental health and maternal health. And I think for us, this now has become a major axis of what the Lancet's trying to do. Rona, let's bring you in. You're nothing if not a campaigner. And we will come to some other highlights in a moment. But in terms of the series launches or campaigns, Rona, what have been the highlights for you? I think what's been so good about the series we've had this year is they've all really highlighted neglected subjects. For example, child development, as Richard's just said, there's a lot of focus on child mortality. Child development, especially cognitive development, is so important but so neglected. And the series showed that over 200 million children throughout the world could be helped by very simple interventions. Likewise with mental health, again, a very neglected subject, and we did a real rallying call for action around that. And then uh, one in October on Who Counts, which... On the face of it, it sounds like it's a very dry and boring subject. It's basically calling for everyone in the world to be registered, you know, their birth and death, so there's some knowledge that they existed. Um, being registered at birth is a human right, yet um, a report by UNICEF last week showed that 51 million children in sub-Saharan Africa, their birth wasn't registered last year. So there's no existence. There's no, you know, they haven't existed as far as the world is concerned. And I think to highlight that issue and to... I mean, the kind of slogan of the series was make everyone count by counting everyone. And I think that's so true. And again, it's a neglected sort of subject, but I think it was so great that we did that. And then chronic diseases, the series that we're just ending with this week. Um, Again, chronic diseases is not in the Millennium Development Goals. It's 
more or less neglected by a lot of the global health community and by the funders, most importantly. So I think showing in the series, again, that simple interventions like reducing salt, like doing more on tobacco control, how much it can really reduce mortality in chronic diseases. Um, and then, again, a real rallying call for action from everyone from WHO right down the list to individuals, what they can do. I think that's really important. And the energy and health one, and I know that was a big one for Richard, especially now the world's so switched on to climate change. I think that was a really important series to have as well. Thanks, Rowan. I'm very glad you mentioned the Who Count series. In a moment, we've got a clip from Dr. Carlu Abuzar from the Health Metrics Unit at the World Health Organization. That's followed by a call to action from Professor Robert Beaglehole, formerly of WHO and now at the University of Auckland, summing up the call to action for the Chronic Diseases series, which concludes in this week's issue of The Lancet. Civil registration is uh, about registering people when they're born. It's giving them a birth certificate. It's noting their existence. And it's about registering deaths and the causes of those deaths. And the whole argument we're making is that it's really important for all countries to have in place systems for counting births, for counting deaths, and for counting the causes of death, because that's the basic information that any society needs for good governance, and it's the basic information that any society needs in order to be able to take sound health decisions. How many people do you have? How many are being born? How many are dying, especially prematurely? And what are the causes of those deaths? Our argument is that it's really important to count people. And Counting people is a sign that people count, that they're important, that every single individual life matters and is important. So it's not just about getting the statistics. It's also about the individual rights that come with registration. Because unless you're registered and you exist as a a person, you're not able to uh, make any of your rights count, your social, your uh, economic, uh, indeed your human rights. Who Counts really has this double sense of it's important to count people because people count, people matter. The science that we have heard about this morning is groundbreaking. Nothing like this has ever been presented for chronic diseases before. What's impressive about the science, it's groundbreaking, but it shows absolutely without doubt that we have the evidence to make a huge impact on the health of people in low and middle income countries by preventing their chronic diseases, their heart disease, their strokes, their cancers, their diabetes, and at the same time treating people who either have these diseases or are cardiovascular disease or at high risk. We can do this. We can save millions of lives. We can avert 32 million deaths by 2015. Approximately half of these deaths averted will be in relatively young people, people under the age of 70, with huge impacts on issues of employment, family incomes, community incomes, and as you heard from Colin, on national incomes. And averting these deaths means that people will live longer, probably they'll live longer in good health, and they will save a tremendous burden on health systems which are already under threat. So we have very, very good evidence now about the effectiveness and the impacts of these interventions. And we know, you've heard this morning, that they are very, very cheap and comparable to other interventions which have been talked about as being needed to be scaled up on the global scale. And in retrospect, 
It seems that when WHO set the global goal for the prevention and control of chronic diseases in 2005, it wasn't ambitious enough. And you've seen how readily the global goal will be achieved in these 23 low and middle income countries. So that's the science, and we all know, you all know, that's just one thing. And the trick now, the challenge for us all, including the media, is how do we translate this evidence into practice? And so this paper talks about the need for a call to action. And there are many stakeholders who have to be much, much more committed to this agenda. And there is a lot happening, and let's not be reticent. WHO has been providing some leadership for some considerable time, but we say, that it needs to, to do much more in this regard. It needs to lead the global efforts, needs to coordinate them, it needs to support global action, and it needs to be much more vigorous at the national level, helping to guide and support countries as they struggle with these epidemics. The World Bank, development agencies and foundations have much, much more to do. They have to recognise the importance of chronic diseases and they substantially have to increase their financial support for chronic disease programs. And I would say that's particularly true of the foundations. Of course, WHO and the World Bank foundations can talk a lot, spend money. Countries ultimately have to take responsibility for these programs. They have to give higher priority to the prevention policies. They have to put their own money into prevention programs. Some of the low-income countries, as Steve was mentioning, are going to need external support to get started. But ultimately, this has to be funded from national budgets. There has to be line items and national budgets for prevention and control of chronic diseases. There's a strong role for national governments to coordinate and, of course, this agenda on chronic diseases needs to be tied in with other agendas that countries are struggling with, perhaps particularly the environmental agenda, the sustainability agenda. Non-governmental organisations, civil society organisations need to do much more. They need to be strong advocates. They need to work together. Many countries have diabetes associations, heart foundations and stroke foundations. These groups need to work together because the underlying causes of these chronic diseases are in common. Clearly there's a need for action on, on each of these organisations, but there's, at the national and global level, they need to work together. And advocacy, evidence-based advocacy, is going to be continually important. The private sector, hugely important as a causation of many of these conditions for, through, because of its impact on diets and other aspects of the way we live. They have to act much more seriously in the public health interest. Lip service no longer, ladies and gentlemen, is sufficient. And what happens in the United Kingdom, what happens in Europe and the United States has to happen across the whole world, particularly the large low and middle income countries. I should say that these slides just summarise the call to action requirements, the more details in paper five. We've heard about the importance of low-cost generics. They are still very, very expensive in many countries and not readily available. So there's a lot to be done, including by the pharmaceutical industry, to ensure the availability, affordability and accessibility of the low-cost drugs, like aspirin, readily available here, but in many countries still expensive. And there's a role for academics in terms of focusing not so much on issues of laboratory-based research, but how do we take this evidence and implement it and, and make sure it's having an impact. This series of papers has been coordinated by the Chronic Disease Action Group, initially to develop this set of papers to encourage the science to do the peer review to get the papers into final form. But there's a much bigger agenda for the Chronic Disease Action Group, which is to encourage and support countries to monitor global, regional and national 
indicators of progress, to develop these indicators of progress and to see how we're getting on. And of course to work with many other agencies and initiatives that are now starting to be rolled out in this neglected area of public health. And one way of measuring progress will be to meet together in a couple of years and hold people accountable and to be able to report back to you and countries the progress that has been made in implementing that which we know about how to prevent and control chronic diseases. Richard, can I just touch on Women Deliver, which was a huge conference organised in October of this year, which involved seemingly everyone to do with women's health. And I, I know it, it was quite challenging to, to coordinate it all. But that aside, it was an incredibly important launch and it tied in with earlier work we've done to do with maternal and neonatal survival. Yeah, in two ways it was important because... First, it was a celebration of 20 years of the Safe Motherhood movement, and it was a very important moment to celebrate the world's attention on motherhood and maternal health. But also, it was a moment to reflect not just on successes, but actually on, it's, it's tough perhaps to call them failures, but certainly residual challenges. It's still true that over half a million women in pregnancy die every year, most of those completely unnecessarily for very, very simple, resolvable problems, hemorrhage, infection, and so on. And what the conference did was to say, look, the report card on maternal health is not great. We need to have a complete reorientation about the way we think about women and their health. And so what this conference was about was changing the tone from talking about just safe motherhood to really thinking about the role of women in society, girls' education, women as citizens, and thinking about the human rights focus of women's health as a way to improve maternal survival rather than just focusing on women as mothers, which frankly is a strategy that hasn't got us very far. So I think this was a very important moment just to turn on where we were going in terms of with women's health and hopefully in 20 years time we will not be having over half a million women dying in pregnancy unnecessarily every year. Let's now hear from one of the key members of the Women Deliver series, Anne Stiles, talking at the launch back in October. I'm actually going to start wearing a slightly different hat. One of the papers that is in The Lancet is an overview prepared by the International Center for Research on Women based in Washington, D.C., which is really looking at what we know and what we believe about the conference theme, which is invest in women, it pays. This theme conveys the key message of the conference that investing in women's health and well-being is fundamental to the social and economic development of families, communities, and nations. And that investing in maternal health and well-being is not just a matter of being fair or a good idea, that it really is essential for the development of countries and families. So, what are the key findings that are presented in the paper? First, that maternal and newborn deaths and illness are still a tremendous problem worldwide, and that the numbers, particularly for these two areas, for maternal and newborn mortality, have not declined significantly in the past 20 to 30 years. We have seen some improvements in child health, but those improvements are not echoed in, particularly in the health of women, of mothers, and of their newborn babies. The other key finding of the paper is that women's empowerment, women's ability to make and act on decisions for themselves, have a critical impact on their health and well-being. That women's ability to have education, 
that women's economic well-being and women's status in the family is very, very closely linked to whether they can survive pregnancy and childbirth, particularly in the terms of its impact on their access, their ability to use services. The third key finding that's presented in the paper is that women's health and well-being has a tremendous impact on families, particularly on children, and through that, on the well-being of nations. And the fourth key finding, which will be talked about by various of my co-presenters here today, is that it is feasible to improve maternal health. So that's a sum-up of our campaigning activity for this year. Rona, what other highlights have you got for us? Gosh, there's so many, it's hard to sort of narrow it down. Um, I think we did an awful lot of very interesting clinical papers this year, and quite a lot of firsts as well. And one that was very uh, dear to me in a way was a very novel invention of a prosthetic arm which showed how it could be innervated. So this is incredible. I mean, the, according to the papers, they know they called it a bionic arm. But the researchers and the um, surgeons were actually able to make the lady who had this bionic arm to be able to feel and to be able to sense and to be able to use it. Now, I've had some of my fingers amputated and I, you know, I know what it's like not to be able to feel them. And I just thought that was an incredible thing to do. Um, and great that The Lancet was able to publish it. And then just a couple of weeks ago, we had um, the first ever artificial kidneys as well. It's just incredible. This could really revolutionise the lives of so many people with chronic renal failure. And I know the series, it was just a case series of eight patients, but I think it's a, it's a great and promising start. So in amongst there, amongst all the great RCTs we published, I think these two sort of clinical papers really stand out for me. Fantastic. Richard, what are the highlights for you this year? Yeah, just a couple of things just to draw attention to. We've seen in the last, over the last couple of years, an increasing number of papers on the success of a vaccine for human papillomavirus as a potential mechanism to prevent, maybe even eradicate, cervical cancer. And we've seen several clinical trials published this year just escalating to scale the evidence for the efficacy of this vaccine. And we're now seeing countries implementing this as a mechanism in, in young females, often girls at school, as a way to really try and tackle the residual problem of, of cervical cancer, which is horrendous. That's an amazing success. And what we're seeing also is perhaps the beginnings of similar success uh, in other areas. This year, in the summer, we published a paper looking at a possible mechanism to deliver gene therapy for Parkinson's disease, a neurodegenerative condition that is very, very hard to control. Drug therapy can give brief benefits, but does not lead to a long-term solution. Gene therapy might. We also saw research... Again, incredible to think. Who would have thought that circumcision could be a serious um, public health strategy for controlling the AIDS epidemic in Africa? And yet, two extraordinary clinical trials showing that, indeed, yes, male circumcision could be a decisive factor for controlling HIV. So some hints of promise for where we might go in the next five years, which I think are potentially very exciting. And looking ahead to 2008, Richard, any hints to what's around the corner for The Lancet? Well, I think in 2008, we, we are going to write, we, we wrote the report card this year on maternal health. We're going to write another report card next year on where we are with HIV because it's the Mexico AIDS conference uh, taking place in the summer. That's going to be an important global event, but we need to be much tougher about holding the world accountable to where they are in terms of policies for 
controlling HIV. We've not done a good job. There's been a lot of debate about how successful UN AIDS has been, a lot of furore over the numbers of how many people are living with AIDS. And I don't think, think we've really got to grips with holding countries and agencies accountable for the promises they've made on controlling HIV. And a big area for us next year is going to be China. We're working with the Chinese Ministry of Health and, again, a remarkable team of scientists from around the world to look at aspects of the Chinese health system and where China needs to go in the future. It's you know, over a billion people live in China. It's a vital player in the world of international health. It has a critical political and economic influence in the world today. China has to be at the center of our thoughts, and we need to, the center of gravity of thinking in the world needs to move away from a, a kind of North American, European focus and much more towards Asia. And I think 2008 is going to see that move. And Rona, what about you, expectations for 2008? Yeah, well, 2008 is the year of sanitation, the UN-sanctioned year of sanitation. And uh, what I should have mentioned in the highlights is we published a paper a couple of months ago that we should know, and we should have won the argument with sanitation, but actually we haven't, and we need to kind of win it again. And this was a population study in Brazil that covered 2 million people that showed that how improving sanitation facilities from 26% up to 80%, how it drastically reduced the incidence and prevalence of diarrhoea in children in the local community. Now, I know we should know that, but the fact is that there hasn't really been very many big um, population studies, and most importantly for funders, funders don't seem to have you know, woken up to the fact how important sanitation is. We know that sanitation is the most effective public health intervention ever, yet 40% of the world still lacks access to adequate sanitation. So I think 2008 um, and the public health implications of, of sanitation will be something very much to look forward to. And I would say it shouldn't just really be a year of sanitation, it should be a sanitation revolution, I think. <laughs> Let's get going in sanitation. Richard and Rona, thank you very much indeed for our quick whiz through of the highlights for The Lancet in 2007 and peeking ahead to 2008. I just want to leave podcast listeners with a couple of little morsels to uh, to hopefully round off uh, an enjoyable review of the year for The Lancet. The first is, I suppose, probably, well, certainly the most famous person who has appeared on, on the podcast, a former US president now doing a lot of development work. You'll hear him talking to Faith McClellan colleague of ours in our New York office back in February out in Ethiopia. And finally, we'll conclude with what I think has been the most beautiful sounding thing on the podcast this year. And it's nothing to do with me. Many thanks to my colleague, Elena Becker Barossa, who works on the Lancet Neurology. Uh, she's Spanish. And back in November, we ran a Latin American issue of the Lancet. And Elena helped us produce a Spanish podcast. I cannot claim to understand much of what's in it but it just sounds beautiful and I think it will just trail away into the holiday season and uh, into New Year so season's greetings everyone and we'll see you again in 2008. President Carter you've been to Africa dozens of times yes. is there something about this trip that has really stuck out for you? Well the trip to Ethiopia has been special we've also been to, to Ghana and Sudan and we're going from here to Nigeria but I would say Ethiopia has been the most exciting part because we are seeing the results of years of, of work here with uh, guinea worm. They've had zero cases of guinea worm since last July, for instance. Only had one case earlier last year. We have a very uh, broad-ranging program in the Amhara district, the origin of the Nile River, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, in trachoma. You've seen in this area here 
the treatment for uh, rubber blindness or onchocerciasis is very effective, and, and the people know what to do, and they appreciate it, and, and the results have been uh, almost perfect. And now we are embarking on malaria, which is the largest project in which the Carter Center has ever been involved. And, and within the next uh, six months, by the end of July, uh, we'll have two uh, long-term impregnated bed nets in every home in Ethiopia that has malaria mosquitoes. Esta semana, The Lancet publica una edición especial dedicada a Latinoamérica. Soy Elena Becker Barroso, una de las editoras de Lancet Neurology, y haré un resumen de buena parte del contenido de esta edición, pero no todo, por lo que animo a nuestros lectores a visitar en Internet el índice detallado de este número, y así no perderse otra información que también pueda ser de su interés.